As you remain standing, let us pray. Gracious Lord, we do thank and praise you uh, for the opportunity to hear from your word this morning. Would you open our hearts and minds to understand it? Would you plant your truth deep within us that we might love your word, that we might love Jesus? And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Many of us know the saying, missing the forest for the trees. The idea is that someone focuses so much on the details that they miss the overall point. That might actually be a pretty good way of approaching our passage this morning. As we continue in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, we come to a passage that is curious to say the least. The passage includes two portions that seem to have Jesus saying and doing things that seem to be out of his character. After all, not only does he stick his fingers in a deaf man's ears and touch his tongue, but worst of all, it seems he calls a Gentile woman a dog. Perhaps unsurprisingly, These two aspects of our passage are what most commentators tend to focus on. The result is a misunderstanding of what Jesus is trying to communicate by overly focusing on the trees rather than the forest. And so, as is often the case, I'm going to ask that we take a step back, that we we see the whole board. And while we will certainly talk about the trees, we will do so in light of the forest. Because when we look at the forest, we see that a passage that appears abnormal is actually about something that is very normal for Jesus. His abundant and overflowing grace. Let's turn together to our reading from Mark chapter 7 and see what this passage is really all about. To begin with, we see the grace that Jesus provides in drawing out the faith of this Gentile woman. We read beginning in verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is the response Jesus gives to the woman's request to have a demon cast out of her daughter. On the surface, it seems dismissive and perhaps even cruel. But is Jesus actually calling this woman a dog? No. He's using a parable. A parable to teach something about himself what he provides, and to whom he provides it. Now you see, dogs at this time were seen as unclean animals because they ate garbage and even corpses. As such, they were not exactly a popular animal amongst the Jewish people. Because of this, it became a popular way of referring to Gentiles because they were themselves seen as unclean and were not particularly well-liked or accepted in Jewish culture. 
Jesus here is using two categories that would have been well known to the woman and to all the others that could hear him, namely the disciples. And he does this not to voice his agreement with calling Gentiles dogs, but to prove a greater point. You will notice that Jesus said the children, meaning the people of Israel, are not the only ones to eat the bread, but they are to eat first. Behind this is the truth that Jesus was sent first to the people of Israel. As God's chosen people, they have the privilege of having the Savior come to them first. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 1 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Greek here uh, being a common way of referring to all Gentiles. In God's sovereign plan, going all the way back to the call of Abraham, the people of Israel were to be a light to the world. And so the light of Christ was sent first to them. Jesus' statement here is about the order of his coming. He was sent to the people of Israel, and after his resurrection, he will commission his disciples to take the gospel out to the nations. It is not that Jesus is refusing her only reminding her that he must first give bread to the children, the people of Israel, then the Gentiles shall eat. It would not be in the line with the plans and purposes of the Father for Jesus to take what was intended for the children first away from them so as to give it to the rest. Now, why does all of this matter? Well, we need this background so that we can understand why this woman's response was so incredibly faithful and why Jesus would use this saying at all. Here is a woman who, from a cultural perspective, has everything going against her. One commentator called the way she described as a crescendo of demerit. In a sense, Jesus is laying a challenge before her. It's as if he is saying, you know this is how you are viewed, you know that I am a Jew sent to and for the Jewish people, you know you are not one of the children, how then will you respond? Jesus is testing her. He is testing her to see if she will respond faithfully in the face of everything that seems to indicate that the grace of God would not be extended to her. Now, we have a hard time seeing this in our day and age because somewhere along the line, it became popular to say that God doesn't test people. That he wouldn't do that because it would be mean and not loving. That he loves us too much to test us. But friends, the opposite is true. It is a gift of grace that God would allow us to be tested and tried because it is through the trial that our faith is drawn out of us. It becomes clear what we really believe, and we are taken deeper into faith. It's how he grows our faith. Let me give you a quote that at least I think is helpful. If you ever uh, want to read something just to kind of kick back and enjoy a book and really not think at all, I would recommend uh, a series of books called the Mitford Series by Jan Karen. Some of you likely know that. I see some nods. 
in the congregation. I think every Anglican in the world at some point has been told about these books. They are uh, remarkably cheesy, <laughs> but an enjoyable series of books about a small town Episcopal priest and his rather interesting congregation. In the first book, At Home in Mitford, one of the characters says this, I've never been one for physical exercise, but what God does with our faith must be something like workouts. He sees to it that our faith gets pushed and pulled, stretched and pounded, taken to its limits so its limits can expand. I think that's a helpful way to understand the nature of testing, especially when we face trials in our own lives. Just as physical exercise may, or probably more likely, may not be terribly enjoyable in the moment, ultimately it is for our good. Through it, we are made healthier, stronger. The examples of God growing someone's faith through testing are, frankly, too many to even begin to list. But perhaps the most obvious example is the entire book of Job. God allows Job to experience horrendous trials so that Job might show and grow in faithfulness. And this Gentile woman, this walking crescendo of demerit, shows us that as well. Jesus is laying an opportunity for growth before her, and boy, does she ever take it. To the shame of all those who could hear. Matthew's account of this passage tells us that the disciples asked Jesus to send the woman away. She was a nuisance to them. And yet this nuisance, this unqualified, unclean Gentile dog has more faith than any of them. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Why is this such a remarkably faithful statement? Because she understands more about grace than nearly anyone we've encountered in Mark's gospel to this point, excluding Jesus himself. And we see that because Jesus tested her. He drew this faith out of her by challenging her. In drawing out that faith, we learn more about the grace that only Jesus provides. First, we see that the grace of Jesus Christ is abundant. You see, in that time, bread was life. And throughout this section, you may have noticed over the past couple chapters and going into the next one, there's a whole lot of talk about bread. It's because bread was life. And throughout this section, Jesus is drawing people to himself, showing that he is the giver of life. In his grace, his unmerited favor and kindness, he provides over and over and over again for the people. And look at what the woman says here. Jesus says it would not be right for him to take away from the children to give to the dogs, and she wholeheartedly agrees. 
Yes, Lord, she says. But, I guess technically she said yet, but it means the same thing in this context. What she is asking for is not the bread, for not, not for life to be taken away from the children, but that she might be allowed to feed upon the overflow, upon the abundance of grace. Think about it this way. Those of you who are dog owners or maybe grew up with dogs around you, where does, where does the dog go during summer? If you have kids, where's the dog going to go, right? Right to the children's seat. Because he knows that's how he's getting fed. There are crumbs and, more often than not, chunks of food dropping all over the place. Nobody's taking food away from the child. That, that child's going to eat to its fill. But so does the dog. That is what the woman is saying here. The grace of Jesus is so great that there is an abundance for us all. Now we tend to miss this because we have this idea, this mindset that grace, if we receive it, means that someone else won't. That it's if this, this limited or finite thing, but the grace of Jesus Christ is abundant. It overflows. It is limitless. That's not all she shows us. She doesn't ask for a loaf of bread. She doesn't ask for this extravagant meal to be set before her on a silver platter. No, she asks for a crumb. Because even just a crumb of grace is sufficient. Even just the tiniest piece of what Jesus offers is sufficient for us. It's as if she is saying, just Jesus, even just a little piece of you, that will be enough. It's reminiscent of the bleeding woman that we talked about a couple weeks ago who in seeking healing believed she only needed to reach out and touch his cloak and that would be enough for her. She would be healed. And even the words of Jesus bring this out for us. Verse 27, it is translated, let the children be fed first. This word translated, be fed, we could also translate it, be satisfied. And that, I think, gets to the theological point here. Just as the feeding of the 5,000, when when Jesus gave of his divine provision to the people and they ate and they were satisfied, so in this instance, when someone comes to Jesus, they find an overflowing, abundant grace that truly satisfies them. And this woman gets it. She gets it better And almost anyone. She gets it so well that she knows she only needs a speck of that grace. Just the tiniest piece of Jesus. It's more satisfying than anything else. Than anything this world could offer her or us. It is what truly satisfies a longing heart. I gotta ask at this point, do you believe that about grace? Do you know that grace? Do you know that it is there in a 
abundance, that just even a little bit of Jesus is more satisfying than anything you can get from this world. I think the sad reality is often, if we're honest, the answer is no. We don't believe that. And it's because we don't get just how free and amazing the grace of Jesus Christ is. It's because we don't think that we should be allowed to have it. We're not worthy of it. And truthfully, we're not. We're not worthy of grace. We're not. But that just makes grace more amazing. Because it's extended to us even though we are unworthy of it. Even though we don't deserve that. You know how I know that? Because this woman literally had nothing about her that made her worthy. She is the embodiment of an outsider. And she is the embodiment of the enemy of the people of God. Mark includes this little note to open the section that Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon. Now we could just skip right over that thinking it's setting the scene, but it's more than that. You see, the people of Tyre and Sidon were perhaps the most frequent and fiercest enemies of the people of God. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that they were notoriously our bitterest enemies. In other words, by any human understanding, they are the last people to whom the grace of God should be extended. They are unclean Gentiles who constantly attack the people of God. They are 100% unworthy. And the leading figures of the day, the scribes and Pharisees, they believed that the Messiah would come not to extend grace to them, but to conquer them, to subdue them. And now here comes this woman. Here comes this woman who embodies all of that. All of that history, all of that animosity, all the unworthiness, and Jesus extends her grace. We can feel like that woman sometimes, can't we? I think if we're honest, we have times where we have felt, maybe still do, feel unclean. We felt unworthy and like we are an enemy of God. After all, that is what sin makes us. Romans 5 tells us that our sin makes us an enemy of God, and yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know that Christ died for you? That he extends his grace to you, even though you are unworthy? Even though your sin alienates you from the Father and made you his enemy, Christ died for you. He extends his overflowing, abundant grace to you. And it is satisfying. Now here's the thing, friends. Not only sometimes do we feel like the woman... <laughs> Sometimes we feel like the disciples who want to tell Jesus to send away those people who are unworthy of his grace. Those who have sinned against us. Those whose sin is too great for grace. We can find ourselves in either position, can't we? 
Guess what, my friends? If you're a conservative, this is going to sound shocking. Jesus extends grace to liberals. <laughs> liberals, guess what? Yeah, he extends grace to conservatives. That's not easy for us to hear all the time now, is it? Jesus extends his grace, not because he sees human status or worthiness, because, but, but because he sees human need. We can easily act like the disciples who asked Jesus to send the woman away, but Jesus extends his grace to all sinners, and that means all people. That sounds like a message our world needs to hear right now where we look around and we seem to think there is enemies everywhere. And we want to bring justice. Our world likes justice, at least its brand of it, but it knows nothing of grace. And it's grace that we need. And so rather than seeing ourselves as beyond the reach of God's grace, or seeing others as beyond the reach of God's grace, we are to see all people as those in need of God's grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He is the propitiation, the perfect atoning sacrifice for sin, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for us who believe our sin is too great and for us who believe that their sin is too great. He is sufficient. And this woman's plea is essentially, Lord, have mercy upon me. Give me your grace. It is the prayer of faith. It's why in Matthew's account, Jesus responds, O woman, great is your faith. How amazing it would be to hear that from the lips of Jesus. How amazing it would be if he could say that about his people gathered together. O people of St. Aidan's, how great is your faith. That gives me chills just to think about. The longing of our hearts is for the grace of Jesus Christ, and we will stumble and fall until we find it, but in having it extended to us and calling out to Christ by faith for his grace, we are given the remarkable gift of it and the incredible effect that it has, which is nothing less than new life. We tend to see grace as just wiping the slate clean. I get to start all over again, but it's more than that. It is new life. That is what is given to this little girl who has been possessed. Her life would have been completely new. And it is certainly what is given to the deaf man. Very briefly. This account with the deaf man is just another example of the overflowing, compassionate, incredible grace of Jesus Christ. At first it seems kind of bizarre. Why would Jesus shove his fingers into his ears and... Why would he touch his tongue? That seems really odd. It's actually gracious that he does these things. Jesus is communicating with this man. He's telling him what he's going to do. He couldn't speak it to him. He wouldn't have understood it. And so he shows him. He communicates with him by touching him, telling him that he is going to open his ears and loosen his tongue. And that's exactly what happens. In his grace, Jesus pronounces to this man, be open. And his ears are opened and his tongue is loosed and he proclaims along with the crowd for all to hear that Jesus does all things well. 
What a gift that is. Could you imagine for a moment what it must have been like to, be, to have the first thing that you hear is the voice of Jesus? And the first thing you are able to say that everyone can understand is praising him, that Jesus does all things well. How many of us who can speak for our entire lives have yet to say that? But it's true. And it began by coming to Jesus in faith. This man's friends brought to him, or brought him to Jesus in faith, believing that Jesus could graciously provide what this man needed, and he does it. And the gift is far better than just hearing or speech. It is new life. The hearing and speech are just byproducts of that. And it all comes by grace through faith. Jesus opens our ears to hear his voice. He opens our mouth to proclaim his grace. And as we'll hear next week, he opens our eyes to see him. That is grace. That is the power of Jesus, and it is there for us. Each and every one of us can have new life in Jesus Christ, not because we have made ourselves worthy, not because we don't have sin in our past or in our present, not because we are just the right type of people that Christ would die for. It is simply because of his grace, because of his unmerited favor. There is nothing we can do to earn it and nothing we have to do to earn it. It is there. It is freely given. What on the surface seems to be a bizarre and perhaps even offensive portion of Scripture turns out to be an amazing picture of the new life that Jesus provides through his grace. And we would never have gotten that if we simply focused on the trees. And stepping back, we get a fuller picture. And one that we should never let go of. Gracious and compassionate is our Lord. And the trials that he gives and the life that he provides. By faith, fall before him and ask for it. By faith, bring your loved ones who do not know him to him in prayer. By faith, count not all the reasons you deem yourself and others to be outsiders and enemies, but come to him and receive his grace. Receive from him new life. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that in Jesus we can have new life, that it's not about what we have done for ourselves, because, Lord, there is not enough that we could ever do to make us worthy. But thank you that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, that because he is worthy, because he died and extends his grace, we might have new life in him. We pray, Lord, for each and every one of us gathered here that you would take us deeper into that faith, that if there are any gathered here that don't know you, you would convict us, you would open our hearts, you would open our, our ears to hear you and our mouth to proclaim you. And we pray that for all our friends, our family members in this world that don't know you. Father, that you would bring revival, that you would bring new life to our land and throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.